Good morning. Welcome to the uh, 9.45 service for those of you who didn't realize the rest of us set our clocks forward. Glad you made it. How many of you, let me ask, how many of you were able to take part in some way at some part of the Authentic Fellowship Conference? Just raise a hand. I'd like to see. Oh, that's great. I'm delighted. Delighted so many of you could take part. I, I pray that that was a ministry to you. I, I pray that the Lord will keep using it in and for all of us. Um, you know, as we, as we encouraged one another to um, embrace this idea of authentic fellowship, this idea of my life the way it really is, with you the way your life the way it really is, before God the way he really is, all in the context of the scriptures the way they really are. This idea that we're actually meant to be connected, so much so that the passage we looked at last week, James, I mean, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 said that the body is something that every joint supplies something. If you're a Christian today, if if you've come to faith in Christ, you know that you're a sinner. You know you deserve the judgment of God, but you came to understand and believe that Jesus Christ died in your place on the cross, that he took on your punishment, and then that he, through his resurrection, proved he really was the Son of God, and he offers you eternal life as a gift. If you're part of the people who have begun that Christian life through faith and, and are continuing you're actually meant to provide something to the body of Christ. Wherever you happen to fellowship, you're a joint. You place some part in the body. And if all of us are functioning, the body will become mature and will become mature. But if you don't, if you're not supplying the part you could supply, you won't reach the maturity you were designed for, and we won't reach the maturity we were designed for because you have a role to play. And so we've been encouraging that, but there's a problem with that, you know. Some of you, have, as you've listened to some of the parts this week, either on Facebook Live or in person, um, we've seen, by the way, over a thousand people have seen parts of the conference uh, on Facebook Live, which is great. I, I didn't even know what that was. Um, and uh, now I've actually gotten to see it. And uh, it's kind of cool. But, but in this effort to encourage us to connect... For some of us, some of us are saying, but I don't connect for a reason. There's a reason I don't connect. And one of the reasons is because people are sometimes really jerks. I, I don't know, you know, I would rather get out of church quickly because I'm a little bit afraid of connecting to somebody because I just don't know that I trust. I've been hurt before. I've been deceived before. I've been... I've blown it before, and I, I don't know that I want to be close enough to somebody where they can see where I might blow it, or I don't want to see close enough where they might blow it. And so I think today it would be helpful for us to look at a passage in James chapter 4, and I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles there, and there's an outline in your bulletin, because I think in this effort to gain fellowship, this honesty, there can also be some downsides. In this effort to connect and speak truth and all, there can be downsides. You know, the previous chapter, James 3, is, is talking about the tongue. James is a real practical guy. He's, he's not really much of a theologian. 
What he really tries to do is just get to some of the high points of the Christian life of kind of here are some foundational things that we need to know as Christians and that we need to do. James, uh, as you know, was the Lord's brother. He's his half-brother, and he didn't believe in him while Jesus was on earth. He didn't become a Christian until after Christ had ascended. And so James was one of these guys, I think you could say, you got to show me. James was kind of a don't tell me, show me guy. So his book is kind of a don't tell me, show me guy too. Well, here's the thing. You pursue fellowship with somebody, you pursue relationship, and something goes wrong. Look at how he starts the book out, I mean the chapter out. And I'm going to read the first five verses. If we have time, we'll get through all the first ten. But I just want to help us to read the first five. Chapter four, reading from the New American Standard. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious, you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We'll just stop there for right now because some of that bears some examination to understand it a little better. He starts off by saying, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And we all know the answer to that, right? It's her. Isn't the source of quarrels and conflicts among you the other guy? Of course it is. If they were as reasonable as I am, we wouldn't have conflicts. Just wish we could get them to understand that, right? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? By the way, he's not just talking about differences. He, the, the words that are used here are fights and wars. That's what it's talking about, fights and wars. And those fights and wars are not necessarily always visible. You could have an open conflict, but frankly, you could have closed conflict, like people you don't talk to anymore, like people who, if you see them, you intentionally turn aside because you don't want to be connected. What causes the kinds of conflicts, the wars, among you and, and, and these fights among you, isn't it always either the other person's personality or the circumstance we were in? And I'm not pretending that other people's personality isn't part of it, and I'm not pretending that there isn't a circumstance that makes this more, uh, more likely, but what it's asking is, not when you just have a difference. You know, like the guy who's over here who's leading worship, Mike Lukens. For reasons I can't explain, Mike is a Philadelphia Eagles fan. <laughs> um, you can't help but have a conflict if somebody's a Philadelphia Eagles fan, right? I mean, from what I understand, even Philadelphia Eagles have conflicts with themselves, right? But I happen to know, I happen to know that a dear friend who is a, I have to get a drink of water to say this word, <laughs> a New England Patriots fan. 
I happen to know, in fact, he's a lobsterman. He's a lobsterman from Maine. And, and uh, I happen to know that that lobsterman, who is a dyed-in-the-wool New England fan, also for reasons I can't understand, watched the Super Bowl with a Philadelphia Eagles fan. And they lived to tell about it. Now, see, that's a conflict, but not a conflict like we're talking about here. I mean, there was a war on the field, which, no, the Dallas Cowboys weren't even close to being in, I'll acknowledge. But, but there, was, there wasn't a war between these guys. It was just a difference, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when you've got something going on that keeps you from somebody or that makes you get in the face of somebody. And God through James, and the Holy Spirit through James, is asking, what causes that? I remember I was on a camp out. We used to have a men and boys camp out every spring. Phil Haynes, a guy from this church, his uncle has a piece of property just across the border in West Virginia. And it was up on top of a kind of a mountain, a flat top, just a neat open place where we could put tents and, you know, we could have the guys who snored a lot, like, a hundred yards away from everybody else, and it would still cause our flaps to flow. Um, unfortunately, now I would be over on that side. But it was a great time, but I remember at the campfire that particular year, one of the guys was sitting there, and you know, you talk about one thing and another, and he brought up schooling, how you school your kids. Now, we happen to have tried everything. Uh, we happen to have tried public school, private school, home school, and we've kind of tried everything. This particular guy made a statement, and he said, I can't see how anybody wouldn't blank school their kids. Now, by the way, I have heard that exact statement from people from all three. I've heard people say, how could a person not give their kids a Christian school upbringing? How can kids not let their kids be in public school for all of the blessings and opportunities? How could somebody not homeschool their kids? And I'll tell you, when I heard this statement, how could a person not X, Y, Z their kids? I got furious. And it wasn't because I hadn't tried the type of schooling that he was talking about. That wasn't it at all. It was that I didn't want somebody walking away saying, well, we have to do it because so-and-so said it. I, did, I, did, I got mad because someone's opinion was so thrown out there like that. I, and, and I didn't want people to feel lesser because they weren't doing something that someone else was doing. And, and I also didn't want people going, boy, I tell you, I can't stand people who brag about their kid in public school or brag about their private school or brag about their homeschool because I just didn't want division. So guess what I did in order to make the peace? Of course, I tore his head off. I just howled at him, you know? I, I put him in his place. And if you had asked me, John, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? I would say, well, it's him, of course. He just said something he shouldn't have said. But God says, isn't the source your pleasures that wage war on your members? Well, what in the world kind of pleasure could I have had that could have provoked that conflict for me. You lust. You do not have, so you commit murder. Now, very few of us have committed physical murder. 
And sometimes we read a passage like that and we say, whew, at least there's a part I don't have to worry about. But remember, James is Jesus' brother. You remember what his brother said about anger? If you're angry in your heart against someone, it's the same as committing murder. He said, if you call somebody a fool, you're guilty of hell's fire. Whoa, that's a pretty tough standard. When James says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder, he's not saying that all the people in that church are, every time they don't get something they want, they, they shoot them. What he's saying is, you hold people in contempt. You, you hate them. You resent them. I remember, I don't know how many of you have done this, but um, I've been through a church split before. Dear people that you are united with, Psalm 55 talks about what it's like to have a brother who's so close that you used to go up to worship singing together. And he's talking about going up to Jerusalem. And now there's a division in the relationship. And the person speaking about that is one of the deepest wounds. I know somebody who came from a divorced family, their parents, and they also went through a church split. They said the church split was more painful for them than the divorce. I remember three years after the one that we went through, coming to a graduation party and seeing one of the people who had been a dear brother, whom I hadn't seen in several years. And I had held some resentment against him for a couple of years, and the Lord had convicted, uh, convicted me of it to the point that I, I had been actually praying for this man for about seven months because I learned or heard somewhere that if you start praying for people that you're angry with, you'll find your heart begins to be for them. And it had happened. So I walked over to this guy, graduation party, 40 people, and I walk over and put my hand out to shake his hand. And he put his hand in his pocket, he put his other hand in his pocket, and he turned around and put his back towards me. Now, sometimes that's what we all do. We have a parent who has hurt us in a very real way, or an in-law, and we put our hand in our pocket and turn our back to them. James is not saying that you have to be someone's best friend who's been difficult. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if there is a conflict, a quarrel, a fight, even if it's an unexpressed fight, the reason that you're in that is because you lust and do not have, meaning you want something and don't have it, so you commit murder. You are envious, meaning you want something and cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So that's kind of encouraging. People say, oh, if the problem is just that I need to ask, God, I need them to be more such and such towards me. I remember one time, speaking of Philadelphia, uh, I took my family there years ago over Thanksgiving. 
And my brother worked for a hotel chain, a very nice one, and he was able to put us in a $340 suite for $75 a night. So I didn't have much money, and we were going to spend three nights at this place uh, in downtown, in a high-rise downtown hotel in Philadelphia, Thanksgiving weekend. Now, let me just tell you, if you haven't ever done that, don't. (laughs) Philadelphia on November the 26th is Antarctica. Uh, The winds blow in the downtown buildings and bounce off each other probably 40 to 50 miles an hour with a mist and 26 degrees and the temperature never changes. It was gross. And on top of it, we are the only people in downtown Philadelphia for a reason. There's nobody there and nothing's open. And I'm stuck because I prepaid for the room. And I kept telling my family, we're having fun. (laughs) And finally, as we left, uh, we left the last morning. You know, we were planning to stay in the afternoon. There was no point to do that. But I had to have a Philly cheesesteak, so I went and found some famous place that was open. There was nobody in line. They say that never happens at this place. But I got a Philly cheesesteak, and everybody else got whatever they wanted. And I got in the van, and we got in. We took off heading south. And about 10 miles or 15 miles outside of town, one of our kids said something either that they didn't like their sandwich or they didn't have fun or something. I don't remember, but it was just a complaint. And I absolutely tore his head off. And I don't know how I did that because I was still driving and he was in the back, back seat of the van, but he said something and I just tore his head off. I was furious with him. I would say I was hateful towards him. I didn't have to use bad language. I didn't have to call any names. But to be honest, if I had, it wouldn't have been any worse. Because dadgummit, I wanted some respect. And I just wanted a little gratitude. Is that so much to ask for? Now, by the way, should we teach our kids gratitude and respect? Of course. And when we don't get it, who are we? At that moment, I was a son of hell. I was a mean man. You see, I didn't have what I wanted. The word here, when he talked about, is not the source your pleasures that wage war, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. That idea of lust is just the word desire. Later in the passage, it's used of God. It's not talking about lust the way we always think of it, as sexual lust or something like that. It's just saying you want something, and that thing you want may be perfectly good. I just wanted my kid to be grateful and respectful. Was that too much to ask? It wasn't too much to want. But when I reject the two great commandments to love God and love people because I didn't get it, there was a problem. 
God said, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend it on your pleasures. What was my pleasure at the moment? By the way, if you're a Christian today, there are meant to be two great pleasures in your life. It's the love of God and the love of his word such that it'll show up in a love for people. That's what's supposed to guide our heart. That's, that's, that's why the two great commandments are love God and love others, right? But guess what my pleasure was at that moment? It's something that if I had been operating well, if I had been walking with God at that second, it would, I could have handled it fine. All I wanted was gratitude and respect. At that moment, that became more important to me than God. So your brother was disrespectful of you at a wedding, a family wedding, and you haven't spoken with him in four years. And no intention, because frankly, you can get by without your brother just fine. That's a conflict. Well, yeah, but you don't know what he did. No, I don't. But I have heard so many stories that would curl your hair, even if you didn't have any. I have seen what sisters have done to sisters. I've seen what parents have done to kids. I've seen what kids have done to parents and to one another. But when I think that I have the right to hold a judgment against someone else because they withheld something from me that I think I deserved, I have not understood the gospel. You see, if you're a Christian, you're a child of grace. God looked at your worst. He, worked at, he looked at your worst deed. He looked at the worst thing you've ever said. He looked at the worst thing you ever thought. And he said, in the middle of the worst you've ever been, I got news for you. I'm putting my son on a bloody cross to hang for you so you won't have to pay for it because I love you that much. And oh, by the way, that's because of grace. And now I just want you to do it with each other. You got a spouse who has hurt your feelings and wronged you and been selfish who has been unkind, who has been uh, very difficult to live with. Yeah, I know, that's, uh, Diane has too. But what God says is, if I have something that is causing me to quarrel and conflict because it's something I wanted, God says it's your... It's a pleasure of yours that you're holding on to. That pleasure that I wanted, you know, I don't know what that man wanted that day when he put his hand in his pocket, but I'll tell you this, unity of the body and the bond of peace was not his greatest wish. Loving God and loving others was not his greatest wish. His greatest wish was something else, and I could have been that man. If it had happened eight months before, it probably would have been me putting my hand in the pocket. Look at verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Does that mean that if you have a friend who's not a Christian, that's what he's addressing? Not even close. 
Does it mean if you like country western music that, that, that that's what he's getting at, friendship with the world? No, that's not what he's talking about. Friendship with the world here in the context is something you have loved more than you've loved God. That's all it is. Someone dissed your reputation. Someone rejected you. Here's my question. I don't blame you if it hurts you, and I don't blame you if you struggled with anger. But if you continue to hold it against them, spiritually speaking, you're an adulteress. Because if you're a Christian, you've been pledged to one wife, Christ. One husband, Christ. And if you put anything in front of him, like I have, you're an adulteress. Because it was more important, at that moment, for my son to be grateful for Wonder Dad was more important to me than loving him or loving God. I was an adulteress. Because at that point, Jesus took back seat. Do you not know that friendship with the world, that is the love of these things that might be entirely reasonable to want, but are never legitimate to demand. Do you remember, how many of you have seen the movie Gone with the Wind? Okay, about half. Um, if you saw it in the old days when I did, you know, uh, 50 years ago, I guess, when I saw it probably, um, they used to have it on reels. You can ask your grandparents what a reel is, but they, gone, gone with the Wind had two reels, and that means it was two hours, and then they would change the reel on the projector and put up another reel. Well, at the very end of the first reel, what I remember as a kid, because I haven't seen it since, and that's not an accident. <laughs> I was in seventh grade English when they made us do it. We're gonna have movie days. Oh, great. We're going to watch Gone with the Wind. What? At the end of it, I would have far, far rather that we had done literature, or composition, or anything other than Gone with the Wind. But at the end of the first reel, Vivian Leigh comes over a rise to a flat top right outside of her farm, which before the Civil War was a beautiful southern plantation and now is in tatters. Trees are shot down, cannon holes around, the property is disheveled, everything is awful. I mean, it just, it looked like it's going to fall over any minute. Vivian Lay sees this, her former life, the things she valued. It's all dead. And she was very hungry at the time because there was no food around, and she reaches into the ground and picks up a turnip and she closes her fist around it and holds it up in the sky like this and says, I'll never go hungry again. She's making a vow. She didn't fall on her knees and say, my life is broken and I need a mighty God. She did exactly the opposite. When she said, I'll never go hungry again, what she said is, I will be my God. In other words, I got a plan. I'm never going to hurt like this again. And folks, most of us have done that too. Most of us have had situations in our life where we're tempted to make a vow. I'll never go there again. I'll never let that. 
But you know what we do when we do that? We say God is good for getting to heaven, and he's good for giving me a nice grandma, and he's good for, I guess, a few other things. Maybe he sometimes heals people. But I know what I really want. What I really want is acceptance by these people. What I really want is for that person to get lost. What I really want, in other words, is something from this world which in and of itself may not have been a bad thing, but I have made it my God. And God says that is adultery, John. You have loved being respected or you have loved being uh, something else that you wanted that was more important to you than I. And then he says this, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And in a sense, he brings every one of us to a point of choice. If you can identify with anything I've said, if you know that you've been in a conflict where you've closed your fist, if you know you've been in a place where you've written somebody off, if you know you've been in a place where you live to protect yourself and your greatest goal is not God's good, but is protecting yourself. If that's the highest goal, God says, we are a friend of the world. Whatever, fill in the blank of whatever that means for you. I'm a friend of the world by virtue of the fact that I want a job I like better. By the way, there's nothing the matter with wanting a job that's better. But if what I say is I will, it is more important to me to get a job I like better or live in a house I like better or be married to somebody I like better. If that is more important to me than loving God and loving others, I am an adulteress and an enemy of God. And as a result, most people who read this and really think about the passage, it's pretty convicting. But look at what God does. This is, what, this is just what I love about him. He talks about normal life. He shows me myself on the pages of a book written 2,000 years ago. And then he says something like this. Look at verse 6 or verse 5. Do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit he has made to dwell in us. Meaning, do you think there's no reason that God wants, he covets your heart to be first? He wants your heart to be first his, not something else to be first. But look at what he says in verse 6. He gives a greater grace. He gives a greater grace. He said, and in the word but, meaning if this passage has convicted you at all, God says, but I've got good news for you. I give greater grace. It's like the Romans 5 verse 20 that says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. If you found yourself to be a person who you realize, even when I was trying to do right, I was just trying to defend my wife and defending my wife's a good thing to do but I did it with hatred towards her mother or whoever it was. You still need to defend your wife. That's good, but you don't need to do it with hatred. You don't need to do it in a way that blocks off a redemption of that relationship. So he says this, he gives a greater grace, meaning no matter what you've done, no matter what I've done, he'll give you greater grace. You tore your kid's head off, he'll give you grace. You turned away from somebody and wouldn't shake their hand or haven't spoken to them in 12 years, he gives a greater grace. What is that greater grace? Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's really just a choice. 
If I'll humble myself under him, he's going to give me grace. But if I tell him, not on your life, I do not want to be available for what you might want me to do in that relationship or that situation. That's pride. Look at what he finishes with. The last four verses, verse 7. I'm going to read 7 through 10. We'll spend about six minutes going through it. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. In the book of Isaiah, towards the very end, it talks about what's going to happen when the Lord Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth. And he says, in that day, certain things will never happen again. And one of the things he says, he's looking, God is looking for the thing that is the worst on the earth and says the worst thing on the earth will never happen again. And do you know what he uses as an example of the worst thing on earth? It's a parent burying a child. That's what God is calling the worst thing people have to go through on earth. Um, our oldest son almost died as soon as he was born, and I remember my rage at God. I remember going and stuffing pillows around my head in the hospital, finding an empty room, closing the door, and just screaming at him. I've been with parents when they buried their kids. I've helped bury kids. If ever there was a reason for a person to grieve, if ever there was a, per a place where a person could have their heart broken in half, I know of nothing, nothing more penetrating than the loss of a child. Nothing. But, you know, God doesn't find any fault, I don't think, with us if we grieve and groan and wrestle with him when he and his sovereignty allows that child to go or that parent to go when you're young, I don't think God's got any problem at all with you grieving and groaning and wrestling. But do you know that when I have been with parents and we have buried children, what I've observed, and I'm just talking about Christians, I, I don't think I've, I've buried a number of children, but I don't think I've buried any Christians, of, I mean, children of people who didn't know the Lord yet. But what I have observed is that when people bury a parent at a very early age when the child's still young or they bury a child, they tend to do it either in faith or outside of faith. It's kind of like how people go through church splits. It's kind of how, like, how people go through divorce. They do it in faith or out of faith. And this is what I mean. In faith is the parent groaning and weeping and at times just, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's a heart broken in half before God, but it's coming towards him and it's saying, I know you're a good God. I don't see it right now. I know, it. I know you're good, but heavens, I don't see it. God, this is just like nothing I've ever been through. But God, I need you. You're wrestling when Jacob was given his name Israel, it was because he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. 
And the name Israel means one who wrestles with God. See, that's what God's people do. They, they wrestle with God during these times. But I've also seen people bury their children outside of faith. And what I mean by that is the fist is clenched. They move away from God. They, they go through the episode where they've been wounded or their child's been wounded or something, some great loss and they pull back from God and from God's people or from family members and they feel quite justified. After all, look at what I've gone through. But according to the passage, God says that's adultery. If I have stopped trusting God because he took my mother when I was eight years old, that's not me, but it, it is a friend. If I have stopped trusting God because he took my child, what I'm saying is my mother staying alive is more important to me than you are, God. My child staying alive is more important than you are, God. That is where I need to wrestle. That's adultery. But look at his promise. Submit to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. In other words, if I've been in one of these battles, these conflicts, Satan is likely influencing me. We don't have time for this, but you'll find in the Bible that if you go looking in the New Testament for the places that talk about how Christians can have Satan influence their lives, do you know that the number one, and there is no number two, the number one way that a Christian invites Satan to have a foothold in their life is not forgiving. That's the number one way, and there is no number two. It's the number one way a Christian invites Satan to gain hold in their lives. But here it says, if you've done these things that we've looked at, like I have, if I will submit to God, starting with resisting the devil, he will flee from me. Praise God. I'm not stronger than the devil, but he is. And he tells me if I resist him, he'll flee. I'm going to take him at his word. What's the second thing he tells me to do? Draw near to God. And what's the promise? He'll draw near to you. Praise God, because I don't deserve God to draw near me after some of the things I've, I've thought and felt and said and done. Some of my attitudes towards God, some of my attitudes towards other people. But he's making me a promise. John, do you know that if you'll draw near me, I promise to draw near you? My sakes, I need that. What's the third thing he tells us? This is all part of submitting to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. What does that mean? It means if you know there's something you've loved more than God, if you know there's something you've loved more than people, if you know you've loved your reputation, or you know you've loved being treated right, or anything like that more than you've loved God and loved people, if you have made any of those things more important to you, God says, confess it to me. That's what wash your hands, cleanse your hands, you sinners. It's identify the sin. And just like 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, he, he, um, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's what cleanse your hands is. But do you know that a lot of people stop right there? A lot of people just confess their sins and then they wonder why their heart grabs the offense back the very next day. Well, look at the next part. Many times we don't. It says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Do you know what that is? That's me saying, Lord, 
This is not the case for me, but imagine if I had a mother-in-law who had tried to be controlling, who had tried to be manipulative, who had tried to be um, condescending. In my own home, I haven't had to deal with that. I've had two mothers-in-law, and they're both wonderful. Uh, I've, I've lucked out, but some of us, that's not the case. I might have asked God to forgive me for my rotten attitude towards her, which I felt like she deserved, but I know it wasn't right. But you know, sometimes my heart hadn't moved at all. And the very next day, I'm just as resentful. So what God is saying, the second part of repentance is not just acknowledge the sin, but repent. And the fullness of repentance is come to him and say, Lord, my heart needs cleaning because I'm double-minded. I know it's wrong, but part of me wants to keep doing it. Would you sanctify me wholly so that I'm like you? Would you, would you purify my heart, God? And sometimes we Christians don't do that, and we wonder why we fall right back into the same offenses. And then he finishes with this, one of the most interesting verses in the whole Bible. There are 31,000 verses, but this one is really takes the cake. Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Doesn't everybody love that? <laughs> it's a weird verse, but what it means is, you know, care about this. If you see that you had to go to the Lord and ask your hands to be cleansed and your heart to be cleansed, there ought to be a certain amount of impact on you. There ought to be something, Lord, I'm sorry. I have made a lot of things more important than you are. I'm just so sorry. That's what he's talking about. And look at how he finishes. He actually gives us a promise. One more time. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Remarkable promise. If we'll humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord, he will exalt us. Let's pray. Father, I've had many conflicts and quarrels. I've had many wars and fights. And in every one of them, I felt like I was right. And I just want to thank you, Lord, that you show me that the real problem on my part of a fight, not a disagreement, not me speaking truth and someone else not liking it, but me fighting, me not wanting to be connected to them, me wanting to break the relationship, me pulling away, me judging them, all those things, those are my fight. Lord, every single time it's because there was something I wanted more than I wanted to love you and love them. And I just want to thank you that you forgive me for that. And I want to thank you that you've told me that if I will continually humble myself, you will exalt me. And I just pray you'll do that for all of us, Lord, and make us as a group of people who find our greatest love to be you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.